Welcome, everybody, to the Kane and Rinse podcast. Uh, today, in Volume 12, Issue 571, we will be talking about the Oregon Trail. And joining me, your host, Brian Edwards, in this issue are Rich Davison. I'll um, trade you two bullets for about 150 pounds worth of meat, please, Brian. Okay, I'll, I'll work on that right now. Let's get to let's get to let's get to Chimney Rock and have a discussion. <laughs> um, Jesse Fuchs. Uh, hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan Zhao. Yeah, as a West Coast American resident, I'm probably the largest benefactor from the uh, Oregon Trail. So this is really, in a roundabout way, um, it led me to where I am today. A homecoming, <laughs> yes. Yes, Ryan of the Willamette Valley. Congratulations. Um, yeah, uh, so the Oregon Trail, it's going to be an interesting episode um, for, for a lot of reasons that we'll get into, but uh, we, this is a part of the intro where we normally describe the game kind of in one sentence, so this is what I've come up with. The Oregon Trail is a roguelike management simulator? <laughs> Bunch of question marks? Um, does anybody have... Any other better descriptors for what this game is? It's a roll and move game, ultimately. That's my thesis, yeah. is that okay. it is a computerized roll. I mean, it star system for we'll talk about, you know, originally, originally, yeah. originally, essentially is a roll and move game. And that's that's kind of its essence. And, and that resembles a roguelike in that it's run based. But, you know, yeah. it doesn't have, it, you know, it, it's always kind of the same path. There's the forks, there's random things that happen, but those random things maybe more resemble drawing from a chance deck. Mm-hmm. And you better make sure you save that 850 for the toll road, because you'll be <laughs> unhappy if you haven't. Um, so, but let's talk about the kind of initial development of of the Oregon Trail. We're not, we're not going to get too much into the history before our own personal histories, so... Um, Let's just kind of talk about the genre. That's so. This is pulling from Wikipedia, and this game is described as edutainment, which is one of those those wonderful mm-hmm. uh, compound words. Uh, would edutainment com- would that be a portmanteau? That wouldn't be. Would it? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. it is. Okay. Yeah, indeed. Um, and hardvark. Like um, or... Yes. Huh. <laughs> so so educational and ed- entertainment, and it's been it was developed uh, initially and and kind of throughout the years by Mech. Uh, which I thought, as a young man, was just a video game company, but it is the Minnesota, as in the state of Minnesota in the United States, Educational Computing Consortium, uh, for, founded in 1971, and the goal of that organization was to coordinate and provide computer services to schools in the state of Minnesota. Um, but uh, obviously its software became popular in, in schools around the world, um, kind of as it went down. That was drawn from Wikipedia. Um, three creators credited... Um, to the Oregon Trail, being Don Rowich, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger. And as we go through this episode, we'll and Jesse, you may be able to speak to this as much or more than I can. Don Rowich is kind of the been the de facto face of this franchise. There's been a few interviews with all three of them, but but when when they talk about the creator of Oregon Trail in big air quotes, it's they're normally referring to Don Rowich when they're when they're talking about that. Uh. Him or Philip Bouchard, who we'll get to, because yes. that's the interesting thing is there are kind of two pretty distinct Oregon trails where there was right. one where the code kept getting kind of palimpsested over and over a decade, but then they did kind of rip it up and both conceptually and program wise, like start again. Right. Uh, yes. But yeah, of those of those three people, I think Rowich is the one who's done the most interviews and is just, yeah, generally, I think it was his idea 
at very first yeah. when it really was just like a paper and pencil roll and move game for his students at the yeah. school he was student teaching at. And then uh, one of the other two convinced him, hey, we have this fancy teletype. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I apologize if people can hear cats, by the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll press on. I hear cats everywhere I go. So it well, that's matter, good. So. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that uh, the history of it is, it, you know, it really starts as this person's wants to make this for his classroom enrichment. They take a few weeks on it. Uh, it goes over great with the students. Uh, and then they kind of put it away at the end of the semester and it's, it's just printed out and dormant for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, it, it takes a real interesting path. So just kind of before our own personal histories, uh, the first release technically was December 3rd, 1971 released as the Oregon trail. And its latest release was April 2nd, 2021 as the Oregon trail. So quite literally a 50 year saga of the Oregon Trail existing in some way, shape, or form as a video game. And I put this down here, and I'm not going to go through all of them uh, for obvious reasons, but over the course of history, there have been 25 different versions and release of the game per uh, the listing on Wikipedia. Now, some of these were kind of the same game split amongst different platforms. Um, it goes through there. They were actually brazen enough in 1995 to make a game called the Oregon trail Two, <laughs> to making an official <laughs> sequel to it um, with it being kind of the similar game. But yeah, 25 different versions uh, over the release of the game. And um, so that will kind of roll into what we're talking about here. This game has existed in a lot of different forms on a lot of different platforms, basically kind of almost every computing platform since home computing existed in some way, shape, or form. So let's kind of get into our personal histories of the game because if we could spend a couple hours just talking about the, the ups and downs of, of where the Oregon Trail has been, but let's kind of take a walk through our own personal uh, style here. I, I'm going to start here um, with you, Ryan. Now, you said you did personally benefit from the Oregon Trail living on the West Coast of the United States, but in your upbringing, in your, uh, in your public or private school education, not sure which you attended, did you come into contact with the Oregon Trail? And kind of how did you start on your path with this game? Yeah, you know, um, anecdotally, you speak to anyone, and it's always that Oregon Trail was the game that they would play during breaks during school. And uh, for me, I don't know why, but it just wasn't the case. I don't remember having it installed on any of the school's computers. I remember a little bit of like Mario teaches typing, and I remember mm -hmm. a lot of uh, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, other famous edutainment titles, but uh, Oregon Trail was not in my kind of immediate vicinity, but it was always one that I was aware of. It's kind of culturally ubiquitous. Um, I'm, I'm sure I must have dabbled with it over the years, but I don't know if I actually sat down to like do a journey from start to finish until preparing for this episode, weirdly enough. But uh, <laughs> but it is so ubiquitous that like it's it's really hard to not get a pretty good sense of like exactly what the game is. Right. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Everybody, depending on what school you went to and maybe what uh, contract they had for their, their computers, you kind of ended up with a different set mm -hmm. of, you know, things to distract yourself from actual school with while you were there. Um, now I had set this kind of aside for later, but I think it maybe uh, makes more sense to uh, review now. So rich Davison, um, 
growing up in the UK, were you aware of this game as a game when you were a child, or was it kind of the memification of the you have died of dysentery stuff later on that made you aware of Oregon Trail's existence? Like, did this pop up at all in uh, in your either your schooling or in your youth? Was this something you were even cognizant of? To be honest with you, Brian, like, I don't even think I knew Oregon existed as a child. Um, <laughs> so, no, is the short answer. I mean, I came to this game at the tender and formative age of 37. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have the kind of storied history that um, it's likely that you guys have had. But um, I do get the sense that it was the, this ubiquitous thing. I don't think it was the, the memes that came across, but rather the kind of proliferation of, like, pre-YouTube video content from specifically American creators that mm. obviously found themselves like hitting the Oregon Trail as part of their um, journey um, that just kind of osmosed it through in, into my culture. Um, and obviously, you know, we kind of have like a really um, massive amount of uh, like American TV here in the UK, certainly in the 90s when they were definitely a little bit less kind of scrupulous about uh, licensing programs from the States in the UK um, so it's likely that I probably came about some of the, the kind of pre-memes memes, if that's even a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I did kind of go back to my childhood and think about my relationship with, with edutainment. And I mean, I don't speak for all of the British people, which, you know, I normally do. But in this case, I won't. <laughs> um, the the kind of uh, proliferation of of certainly of computer games in the UK, to my mind, was a, probably a little bit less um, of a free market than it might have been in the U- uh, in the US. Like we had, um, in my school, the Acorn Electron, which was a budget version of the BBC Micro. Um, all of the games that I played were things like, uh, what's it called? Mickey's Magic Mixture, which is like a, um, a, a, a Poundland version of Roald Dahl's um, George's Marvelous Medicine. So really oh, okay. like litigious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about it, it is that it wasn't necessarily educational. If anything, the education came in like interacting with computers, becoming literate with computers rather than actually um, learning like subject matter expertise. So it, mm. like an endlessly fascinating title. I mean, I'm definitely the imposter on the show. I'm not really sure what I'm doing here. Um, the closest <laughs> thing I've ever came through to actually anything to do with the Oregon Trail is probably watching those Ken Burns PBS documentaries like The West. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I played through the game. It's not exactly difficult to get hold of. And um, what I did do actually is spend quite a significant amount of time with the uh, 2021 release, which is a slightly different beast. Oh, cool. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of differs when compared to, to yours and Jesse's. Nice. So, uh, Jesse, I know that we've discussed this a little bit previously, kind of just uh, in Slack messages and and before a couple other recordings, but uh, you not only experience this game uh, in your youth and in your schooling, but now it's you actually take that experience and put it to practice in your current profession, yes, if I'm understanding that correctly? Yeah, there's a, a edutainment week in that 80s class I teach, and... Um that Oregon Trail is like an enormous chunk right at the beginning of it because I use that to essentially tell the story of of Mac in general. Which is kind of how this became, this is your selection, if I'm correct, for this volume of Keenan Rince, correct? Yeah. So what was your history with it uh, growing up until now? I mean, surprisingly, maybe a little less than you'd think. We're going back to it. I know I played the 1985 version at some point, but because of the age I am, it was actually the the terrible 
you know, or the, the, the 1980 sort of in-between version that I clearly distinctly remember playing in elementary school. Um, mm-hmm. Because I definitely remember the horrible, horrible hunting mechanic from that. Uh, yes. But I also remember the horrible hunting mechanic from the 85 version, but I'm not sure if that <laughs> was just later when I started, you know, looking at this stuff. Um, and I have a isolated but but pretty vivid memory of some sort of a LARPy Oregon Trail week-long thing in my, uh, like, enrichment class or whatever that we had in elementary school where we got to do things like, you know, play with the Apple II and do LARPy mm. edutainment things or whatever. Get disagree. Yeah, <laughs> I I had to throw like a beanbag into a waste paper basket or else we would be killed by an avalanche and I missed. I remember that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just just those little bits of like, okay, this is part of American culture. But uh, in terms of selecting it, it was a bit of a punt where... I had, I, you know, planned on trying to sort of cajole three people into one of my more idiosyncratic, like some particular cinemaware game. And it was just time to pick. And I just sort of was like, oh, uh, and this game is just fascinating. And we don't really cover edutainment very often. And it's such a mm-hmm. cultural landmark. And whatever my varied opinions are of like the actual fun value of different versions or whatever, like we're not going to have trouble finding things to talk about. And it is... The sec- it, it, it's the educational game I talk about for the longest in that class, even though I wouldn't say it's my favorite. Uh, someday sure. we'll do our two and a half hour episode on Ducks Ahoy, but uh, <laughs> not this year. Yeah, and just briefly for myself, um, I remember vividly having an Apple IIe in my third grade classroom with the Oregon Trail, kind of constantly booted in it, you know what I mean? It was, did you turn it on? That was the floppy that was in there, and, and we spent... I mean, just hours, hours playing the Oregon Trail as kids. Uh, when I was, let's say I was probably in fifth grade, so let's call it 1990, 1991, um, we got a computer with a PC at home for the first time um, with Windows. Let's see what it would No, it wouldn't have been Windows. Yeah, it was DOS computer. Then we eventually got Windows 3.1, and we had the eventually had the 1993 version of Oregon Trail. And it was like one of those things that... You know, I wanted my parents to buy me computer games, and I, like, somehow ended up with Encarta, um, <laughs> the Oregon Trail, and uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. And then I had to, like, con my parents into letting me get Day of the Tentacle, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I had to, like, really kind of, like, squeeze it or, you know, figure it out how to how to make that happen. Um, but that, that version of the Oregon Trail, as well as the original, I mean, I, I was conservative estimates because those were, that was the computer in my house, and that's what we had, and, um, I mean... The high hundreds, if not thousands, of hours spent playing various versions of the Oregon Trail over over the years. So, um, just a huge part of my childhood, and um, and basically a huge part of my schooling too, because it was on every computer through um, elementary school, middle school, and then in high school, <coughs> our um, our school district was uh, decided to put in a network for our computers at school because the internet was becoming a thing, and so they had a network. And once they had a network, we all knew more than they did. So. Um, I got kicked out of school for two days for setting up land games of Duke Nukem 3D. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was kind of that's when the Oregon Trail kind of went downhill and we spurned off into other directions. But uh, but yeah, so big part of my childhood, to say the least. That is the other thing about edutainment is a lot of it does come from context. And I am 
gonna wonder how it this game comes off to someone where, who, who wasn't originally playing it and like well it's this or school you know right uh, yeah exactly although i suppose yeah, exactly. if you do it for kid and rinse it's its own form of homework so you know who knows on the educational context how do we feel this and maybe we'll touch on this later but uh how do we feel that this game does in actually teaching people things about american history like do we feel like in an educational setting, this does provide actual kind of like useful context and lessons. I can I, I can probably speak to that. So like I'm not steeped in American history, uh, obviously, uh, as a British person, but um, my academic history is obviously, I say obviously, I may have talked about this before, I've got two degrees in geography. So I do have a kind of geographical sense of um, how America set up. Um, playing the Oregon Trail, I probably feel like I was probably going to come to this at some point. Um, it's interesting because I thought about this throughout as I was playing it. Obviously, there's a sense of causality that's missing when you play in this. Like, it's very difficult to sort of differentiate why one might get dysentery um, or, you know, why typhoid is a problem. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily speak to the struggles and the plight of, of people who were migrating west. But um, there's, like, an interesting story about, like, exactly how the topography and the geography of America is set up and, and some of the challenges that they may have faced. Hmm. I... I do remember playing this through and and maybe not getting a sense of all they really talked about was westward expansion, I guess. So like getting like westward expansion and manifest destiny and that the you know the whole idea was for America was going to go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. It was just this like lofty goal that was kind of romanticized, I guess. And I think what the Oregon Trail does and we will talk about this later is it kind of um gives you a light sense of maybe what that experience was like, maybe without necessarily some of the reasons as Rich already discussed on, but like also cutting out some of the more uh as as public school education tends to, the the darker aspects of the implications of spreading West and what you might be doing to, you know, the people that already live there. Um and uh yeah, so I think I think the game kinda really doesn't acknowledge that at all. But um but I mean I learned when it comes to like landmarks and things like that, like when I'd hear about, you know, uh, Chimney Rock or, um, you know, what, uh, what's the, uh, uh, the Willamette Valley and things like that. Like I, I would have geographical context for those things, but as far as actual <laughs> teaching, I'm not sure. Um, what, what about you, Jesse, as somebody who tackles this from an academic standpoint now, when you're, when you're talking about it, do you think, I, I, I do believe that there's, I've had some edutainment that has been educational. Would you, would you put the Oregon trail up there as something that, gives decent lessons to be learned i don't know i've been thinking about this a lot (laughs) and it definitely ties into like really big issues about not just edutainment but simulations especially simulations for entertainment just because there is you know like games are fun because you have control and clear causality like life you know that that this the Oregon Trail even the Apple II version is in some sense somewhat accurate because it does teach you the lesson of like you might die and you don't actually have much control over it you know and maybe you should have just stayed in Delaware or whatever before you went to Missouri in the first place uh and <laughs> there is some sort of broad like the Roland moviness of it which I think is really actually kind of important because there's a lot of you know, the equivalent to Oregon Trail would be some late 19th century board game about, you know, the exact same thing where you're rolling and moving and having, you know, you land on the space where you get dysentery or whatever, probably 
Mm. Uh, less death involved and more moving back spaces or losing turns or something. But, you know, this is this this is a model of edutainment or at least, you know, like content exposure at, you know, certainly on that level. Sure. Like, as you were saying, yeah. in the same way that I played a bunch of wingspan and I don't think I understand birds anymore. But, you know, I've seen a lot more of them and I, you know, might recognize their names. Great. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, it's yeah. In, in the same way that Carmen San Diego, you may not know much about the state of Vermont, but you know what the state bird and state flower are because of the criminal saying, oh, well, they said they were going where the state flower is chrysanthemum. And then, you know, that you have to go to that place. Yeah, uh, right. it's interesting. Um, Although the, here, here's because Carmen San Diego was the other one that I was going to, uh, you know, I was sort of choosing between that and Oregon Trail as kind of being the two big seminal edutainment games we could talk about from the 80s. Uh, and the reason I went with Oregon Trail was because if we did Carmen San Diego, I'd have to buy everybody at least a World Book Almanac 1985. And, you know, yeah, of maybe, course. maybe some other yeah. books <laughs> if we want to do where in time or whatever. Uh, because that's the real game. Like what you learn from that and what makes that game weirdly fascinating now is it's a game about going through what even in 1985 was a somewhat arcanely organized reference work. And now mm -hmm. is just like glyphs on the pyramids. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it. you could Google the state bird of Vermont very, very quickly. But that, you know, in the sense, the, the Carmen San Diego is not Carmen San Diego without that book. And Oregon right. Trail doesn't exactly have that friction. Although if you look at like the teacher's guide and all the stuff along with it, it's clear that it is supposed to be, you know, ideally you're doing imaginative exercises. You're writing in a journal. You're, you know, you're playing this in a group of eight kids, maybe, even though it was mixed move into the home market as well, you know, kind of serving two masters, but definitely, sure. you know, a lot of the edutainment of it is probably more about you're using a computer and you're deciding on things with your friends and right things yeah. like that right and interesting and it's a historical sheen is nice but but yeah, yeah you're not going to capture the real decisions you have to make <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the inception of the Oregon Trail itself as Jesse said it was a a a board game or a roll and move game as as he described um uh, this is from Wikipedia in 1974, the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, a state-funded organization that developed educational software for the classroom, hired Rowich. He retyped the game from a printout of the 1971 basic code into the organization's timesharing network. Then he modified the frequency and the details of random events that occurred in the game to more accurately ref reflect the accounts he had read in the historical diaries of people who had traveled the trail. In 1975, when his updates were finished, he made the game titled Oregon available to all the schools on the timeshare network. The game became the network's most popular programs with thousands of players monthly. Um, so I think this is important to kind of talk about um, uh, in in kind of in conjunction with the Oregon Trail itself was the real boom of computing, particularly educational and home computing in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, so Steve Jobs said in 1995 in an interview with Smithsonian that one of the things that built Apple II's was schools buying Apple II's. And... So we already talked a little bit about uh, computers in primary schools. I I remember specifically um, in my third grade class, as I described, we had an we had, every third grade classroom had its own computer in the room, which was a gigantic deal. And I remember because my mother worked at a public school and she had to take she had to like sign a contract 
and take her Apple IIe home with her <laughs> over the summer because they were afraid people were going to steal them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had an Apple IIe in my house. was very lucky. I played a lot of number munchers on that thing over the summer. Um, Another what, excellent mech game. Yeah, exactly. Um, is So when you think of computers in your schools, uh, aside from the Oregon Trail, are there any games that spring to mind? I mean, we already talked about uh, Carmen San Diego. I know you spoke about that, Ryan. Uh, Rich, uh, just out of curiosity, like what was... In your primary schooling, what was the computer situation when you when you entered elementary school, uh, primary school? Were were computers a part of your in the room? Were you guys going to a computer lab? How did that work for you? No, not at all. Um, like, I, I mean, weirdly enough, Jesse's probably the person to be asking about how the British educational sort of system interacted with uh, computing. But from, from what I gather, the the BBC. Uh, developed the BBC Micro, and then it was licensed or generated by Acorn Publishing, or whatever the case may be, and then there was a, a licensing agreement within school. So it wasn't very much a kind of like, we have a lab or we have um, a, a system within the classroom. It was a school had a computer. And it was always really difficult to kind of like leverage that kind of bit of technology into the the curriculum. So we didn't necessarily enjoy some of the material that you guys did. Like the Oregon Trail, to me, seems like a nice, easy an easy poll to have a history lesson or maybe even a computing lesson somewhere between the two. There wasn't quite that. And I'm sure some of the listeners may be able to kind of pull from some really esoteric titles that align uh, in the same way, but it, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, separate of this also, I'm, I'm of a particular age where CD-ROM titles were a bit more of a kind of thing uh, during mm-hmm. my sort of, like we had three tier education, much like in, in the U S so middle school, for example. Um, yeah. And then it was it was slightly different. It was like Encyclope- Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, Encarta software, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I wouldn't say it was as kind of pervasive or as uh, ubiquitous as it might have been in the States, but um, we had some stuff. Um, unfortunately, I can't think of any titles in particular that have been as yeah. formative and, um, you know, like long lasting as the Oregon Trail might have been for, mm-hmm. for you guys. What about you, Ryan? I know that you mentioned Carmen San Diego before. Any other big edutainment titles from your from your youth there? Um, I sought a lot of them out on my own. I was very interested, like at a young age, in like the Magic School Bus games and uh, a lot of the humongous entertainment stuff. So you know, Putt Putt saves the zoo and Fatty Bear's birthday surprise and Pajama Sam, kind of towards the tail end of my my run with uh, with those types of games. But those were ones that I would have to. Uh, like check out a computer at the local library. I don't remember them being available in my school settings, and I'm not I'm not sure exactly why that is because I do remember um, computers being around when I was when I was younger. But uh, yeah, I don't remember there being a lot of games. My my prevailing memory, uh, maybe to show you <laughs> a little bit of where I'm coming from here, is uh, people watching screensavers and uh, putting. Sure putting bets on the the rats that would race around the track uh in a particular <laughs> yeah. screensaver and yeah so you know i guess I, I don't i don't know what the um what the differentiation between my experience and, and a lot of other people's experiences would be but uh, i guess that's that's where i found myself that's awesome um jesse how about you uh i I had an odd, I mean, I went to a public elementary school, but I was lucky enough to be in some sort of an, uh, I filled in a lot of bubbles correctly and would end up in programs where I would have more one-on-one time with a teacher, you know, once a week Mm. or whatever, but often would be like, well, let's do some edutainment-y thing on the computer. Um, And uh, 
I the the one that if if there was anything I I, I would just cajole everyone into doing a, a giant series on it would be the Scholastic Microzine series, which is a fascinating mm-hmm. uh, a magazine series that came out like once every quarter for four or five years that, you know, every issue has uh, a choose your own adventure called a twist a plot, a, you know, like a baby spreadsheet program or something Mm -hmm. like, you know, a logic game, you know, some letters from students the previous time, et cetera. Uh, But as, as a cultural thing, that's actually the one that kind of stuck with me the most, just because it was a a regular part of like third through sixth grade for me. It was, was when one of those would show up Um, in, and like lemonade stand uh, and other uh, resource management type things. And, and certainly there's, you know, this spectrum of like, I played a lot of mule, uh, which is not exactly mm-hmm. an edutainment game, but I would say is doing what Oregon Trail in some sense is trying to do better, at least in terms of educating, you know, getting kids to feel a algorithm from the inside, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. just like, right. you know, a lot of these games, Lemonade Stand and in, in its progeny are here's three lines of algebra. The puzzle is reverse engineering it by trial and error. And that's pretty fun if you put a good skin. I mean, you know, on some level, you could say that about a lot of idle games, ultimately. Mm. You know, they might be yeah. more complex, but, like, that's a fun puzzle. And especially if you put, you know, a fun narrative on top of it. Where, you know, the Universal Paperclips episode, uh, I think, last year. Yep. Uh, yep, 100%. But, yeah, I... I you know, I have I have fond memories of mess and and the Apple too. I am still I never owned one. It is that odd thing of it being as I think me and Leon have talked about. You know that that uh, the computers cheaper than that were also more fun than that. So the only kids you mm-hmm. knew who owned an Apple two kind of envied the Commodore sixty four or Atari eight hundred. You know you sure. owned, uh, but they're very and I think a lot of them sticking around schools paradoxically is like they're kind of fun but they're not too much fun right, right. like the yeah. the janky colors the the lack of sprites there's a very funny um log uh, apple logo i don't know if people know logo but it's this very simple programming language where like you have a little turtle and it draws things but very you know i talk about in the edutainment class even though it's not quite a game uh, mm. but there's a, a diary I found from some kid who in summer camp like 1988 or 89 was doing this and is just mocking this mercilessly because like he is a Nintendo, you know, like you look right. at an Apple II right. in yeah. 1988, 89, yeah. when these, like there's a, an Oregon Trail semi-sequel that maybe we'll touch on toward the end called Freedom about an escaped enslaved person trying to get north, which is a mm-hmm. fascinating, yep. well-intentioned, uh, well-crafted debacle. Uh, but yeah. that, I mean, it, in one sense, the most fascinating thing about it is it comes out in 1992 on the Apple right. II. Like, and it's, yeah. whatever its flaws, it, a lot of work clearly went into it. And like, by people who spent a decade on the Apple II, and there is still somehow something of a viable market uh, for that mm-hmm. machine. And I, that's the part I'm really fascinated by is, is just sort of how it ties into everything about 80s computing culture in a very, you know, direct way. So let's move from edutainment to the actual Oregon Trail. Like, as I said before, there are 25 different versions of this game. I mean, that's kind of conservatively. I combined a couple things there. Um, 
And the way that I, I see it, Jesse, and, and I, I if correct me if you, if I have any glaring errors here, but if you were playing the Apple II nothing but green version of the Oregon Trail, you were playing the version designed by Don Rowich. If you were playing the little bit more color, had some animations for fording across a river, um, got to see some more, a few more images, you were basically playing the R. Philip Bouchard redesigned version of that game. Am I am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to a first yeah. approximation, there's other people yes. involved and blah, blah, blah. And, and yeah. you know, Bouchard is, is basing it certainly conceptually. But as he talks about, he wrote a whole book called You Have Died of Dysentery that mm-hmm. if people are interested in game design, you know, he there's a lot of interesting models very seriously behind the Oregon Trail game that he's thinking about in terms of like historical information. And in a sense that one of the flaws of the game is all that simulation doesn't necessarily come across to the player as something they can causally understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, maybe it just feels like dice rolls, but it is right. there. And certainly reading him talking about like thinking that through, it's working on a very different level uh, than that first version. Sure. Um, and that that version is very easily accessible, and from what I understand, completely legally, just by uh, through a web browser in the Internet Archive. Um, so, um, very very accessible for those of you who may not have chance chance to play that. I know that the the Windows three point one version is also available with just a click of the the DOS box opens right up in your web browser. You hit full screen, and you're off to the races with little to no effort there. So, certainly accessible to go back and, yeah, and not give only it a that, try. Brian. I think fascinatingly, it's embedded in the Visit Oregon website um oh, so the, awesome. the actual implications and effects of what it's done for um the, <laughs> you know the local uh, tourism board in oregon is, is kind of interesting uh that's so there's <laughs> that's a funny awesome. minnesota oregon subliminal rivalry here of like them both uh, taking ownership of this game because mech I mean, it, it was kind of the pride of Minnesota in that every other state was paying them a few hundred thousand dollars a year for, you know, blanket rights to, you know, uh, use their awesome entertainment software or whatever. So they they also, you know, but yeah, I mean, you don't want to get to Minnesota. You want to get to Oregon. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the actual playing of the game. Um, so Oregon Trail in all of its forms kind of starts out the same way. Um, you basically are, are a, you're a pioneer, you're a, you're a wagon train, maybe you're, and, and you can kind of role play this however you want. In my mind growing up, I don't know where, why, why I thought this, um, I, I was always a family moving West. Now that's kind of how they set it up too. This is what the imagery would suggest, but it really just has you name five people. You could have named five lawyers or five doctors or whatever, but I always thought like, you know, uh, two, two parents, two kids and a pet is kind of what I was thinking about who was going on the trip. Um, and uh, you start out with your party, you kind of pick a class, for lack of a better term, which is an occupation um, or kind of a, a light backstory to your character. And you're kind of set out with, um, you know, preparing yourself for the journey. So so Ryan, um, w- this is something that I did not make the connection to when I was in the third grade, but I certainly did in the fifth and th- sixth grade, is that this game kind of starts out with... Uh, you basically making a decision of how you start and how you start ends up with how much money you have. And there's only a couple different options. And the way it basically presents them is that if you, if you've gone into the medical profession, you're rolling in it. And if you are, uh, have done something a little bit more blue collar, you're going to have a little bit less starting capital. Um, coming to this both from your lens as a child and also from your lens. Now, um, 
the the beginning of this game. Did you did you always uh, or have you always tried to roll doctor to give yourself the biggest amount of money at the starter, or did you challenge yourself by going as uh, as one of the lower occupations? I think it's it's interesting from the perspective of like especially a first time player. Um, because you don't really have a sense for how much the money is really going to affect your your journey. You know, you, mm-hmm. the idea as you're heading into the wilderness, um, you know, we at least have this conceptualization that the uh, s- kind of socially constructed currency is going to start to lose its value as we find our, you know, we've seen Triangle of Sadness last year. And, and we see like when, mm-hmm. when um, people who are protected by the kind of social constructs uh find their way out into the kind of indiscriminate nature uh it has a certain kind of equalizing effect and so you know i i think it's interesting i don't know you see i'm kind of like of two minds whether or not that's a, kind of like an appropriate starting place because on one mm-hmm. hand people were kind of venturing into the into the darkness a little bit into the jungle um, they they didn't know exactly how much they needed to have on them to survive the journey. They didn't know exactly like how far their money was going to carry them, if money was even going to be a valuable trade resource at all. Um, right, right. It, that that kind of uncertainty, I think, it, it, it's something that you kind of lose in repeat adventures because you start to kind of learn the the math. You learn the risks you learn the percentages a little bit more but that that first um that that first journey i think is really magical in that sense of that like you really don't know what to expect you don't know how much value everything's going to have you don't know whether it's good to buy as much food as you can at the very beginning because it's never going to be cheaper than it is now and you'll Mm -hmm. learn that pretty quickly um you don't know what the risk is in overloading yourself from the beginning because, hey, it looks like everything is a really good deal. So, you know, why not? And <laughs> you, again, you learn that pretty quickly why you don't over-index <laughs> from the very beginning. Uh, so I, I think the uncertainty is um, is a really strong part of the the game from an experiential perspective. I think, you know, there's a little bit of like, if you are truly role-playing, then you could expect that the character who are, who is kind of living the life and who is embedded in the society might have a little bit more context as to kind of what to expect uh, stories from people who have made the journey before, um, you know, newspaper articles, the amount of research that a person would have done to kind of catch themselves up. And there is a little bit of context. I'm not remembering if, if you can read some local papers and listen to the gossip in the original versions or whether that was an addition and later versions of the game. But uh, you do get a little bit of a sense of that, but I, I like the uncertainty. And I think that like that first, the first honest journey is really where the, the meat of the experience is. So uh, rich, uh, I, I was, I was fortunate enough to have you sending me screenshots of one of your uh, <laughs> uh, maiden voyages across the Oregon trail. Um, when it came to you know kind of preparing for the uh, for for the journey, I I was always that type of person that would kind of try to evenly spend my money over everything, right? I'd get a bunch of clothes. Like the game gives you a little suggestions, like we suggest you take this many clothes or whatever, blah blah blah. It kind of puts you down that path. Now, but I also know you. You're a bit of a renegade when you play these games. So mm. were you just setting a grueling pace, 
100 pounds of food, figure it out on the road, just going out there? Or, or did you or were you actually trying to have your whole family survive on this trip? I mean, fa- family is a strong word. Uh, yeah. So um, <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning that in the version that I played, which I gather is the 1985 Apple II version, it does make it quite clear from the beginning that there is a kind of points based score attack element mm-hmm. uh, based around the handicap that you adopt at the beginning of the game. So it's banker, carpenter, and farmer, I believe, with farmer being what is ostensibly difficult mode. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I chose banker. I, I'm, I'm in this for a good time, not a long time, Brian. Um, so <laughs> I um, had w- more than enough money. And and for that reason, I think we, and I say we, it's because I, I played this with a guide. Leah joined me for a screen share for this. Uh, had probably about five times the amount of ammo that we're ever going to need as part of this journey. Um <laughs> But it really, so a, a it, true it, American experience, then, Rich. Yes, <laughs> it, you know, I find it. It, it kind of matters for naught because there's some great equalizers as you go through the um uh, through the story. And and in in fact, actually, the very first game that I I, I played, um, within three stops of actually leaving Missouri, I actually found myself being like I had twelve oxen, and yet somehow fifteen of my oxen were uh, stolen uh, in the middle of the night, and and thus ended my journey. So yeah, um, I, I sort of had this really interesting take on it, I guess, um, which is to say, I, I guess it kind of doesn't matter because there's so many different variables um, throughout the game that, it, you know, you could find yourself coming a cropper of some of the kind of random decision making that comes through. I think the thing that I did find was interesting is the whole, and this this sounds a bit odd to kind of phrase it in this way because, of course, uh, Oregon Trail precedes this game by a significant amount of time is the whole, like, XCOM style naming of your characters and the sense of kind mm, of accountability yeah. and ownership that you have for those characters as well, you know, imparting upon them your own um, personalities, um, all that sort of good stuff really helped us to try and engage with the story and, and apply a little bit of kind of ownership of some of the decision making that was being taking place. It almost reminds you of like uh, those Nuzlocke Pokemon runs or or anything Absolutely. like that, where you just you, you buy you, you grow. You grow attached to this character you've never met before, <laughs> just kind of from the outset, because like, yeah, by typing in their name, you are you are essentially both bringing them to life and being responsible for their safe passage across the West. Um, so Jesse, the um uh, the the roles at the beginning kind of a little bit less of what I um I know like as Rich said, kind of less importance for the the journey. Kind of sets the difficulty of the mode, but um the the attempt to to weight the player with the choice of you have X amount of resources, you have X amount of space and you need to make this long journey. What do you think is important in making that, um, making those assessments? Um, like in your experience, did, did you, were those things that you like considered kind of carefully or were you just kind of, I'm going to take what the game recommends (laughs) and I'm going to hit the dusty trail, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I messed around with it a little and, and certainly after the first game where I remembered, you know, the, the dramatic arc of this game where, uh, or of, of reality, I guess, of the Oregon trail where it starts kind of gentle and just gets more and more brutal as you go along for the most part with some, you know, respites, but, uh, it, I mean, this I've never been someone who can get too deep into kind of a spreadsheet management game in that way. Like, mm. I'm a, definitely a satisficer, not an optimizer. Uh, right, okay. And what you're talking about, about, you know, that I think 
one thing, because I did play some of the 2022 uh, or 21 one as well, so it'll be fun to talk about that. But I think one thing that does successfully is is make it a little more of a role-playing game in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do, you know, that there's... Uh, I apologize for just like a 30-second little professor bit that I'm sure you know. But no, please, uh, the, the please. whole difference between like input randomness and output randomness is one of these things that always comes up in game design, right? The idea of, you know, if you have dice, you roll them and then you that kind of creates a puzzle and you have to kind of decide what to do with them. And that might be like a Euro game or more strategic or do you decide to do something and then roll dice and you either succeed or you fail or, you know, it's in God's hands mm-hmm. or whatever, which is... And and often in game design stuff they'll say that's worse, but what they really mean is just less strategic. Because obviously it's not it's not worse. It's just it's more dramatic, right? It's more right. you know. Yeah. Uh, and role playing games make a lot more sense with that because if you have some fiddly system where you're min maxing how your thief picks a pocket, you know, using cards or like that's not what a role playing game right. is about, right? Role playing game is right. about you try to do this, no one yells, uh, and. <laughs> What struck me playing this and is kind of the paradox of simulation for me is like if you look at war, like the games where you have dice's output randomness are role playing games, dopey beer and pretzel games and children's games, hardcore war simulations. Right. (laughs) Or just sort of hardcore simulations in general, because if you're trying to simulate reality, you have to have. Just and then you die or you don't. I don't know, man. It, who knows, right? And and right. that's kind of the weird thing that this runs into is that's not exactly fun. And Oregon Trail is a game where you just sit there and your little guy goes along and just like bad card after bad card gets flipped up on the screen and you're like, well, okay, uh, right. I guess I could take a rest. You know, that's about my whatever. Uh, I'll I'm already eating. St- eaten filling you know uh but (laughs) right right it's not inaccurate and that is kind of the interesting tension of if you're making a game about teaching kids how bad this sucked uh you don't want to make it too fun in a sense but it was right but if you're at school it's, it's fun enough things are moving on a screen more right. Yeah. I mean, anything, anything, anything that's miserable, but but not sitting in school and being able to play a game on a computer is less miserable than anything else, at least probably to most yeah, of us. And it's pretty school. good. And you do role play into it. And, you know, but but there, to me, that's the part that I'm keep coming back to on on these games is, you know, that that idea of educational simulation uh, and is, you know, is that just a curse problem trying to make that fun? Um, right. Yeah. Uh, well, it kind of it kind of leads into the next thing I had bulleted here, and, and I'm not I'm certainly not one for having to stick to the script, as it were, when we were this, but it kind of f- falls into it. Um, one of the more gamey things about this game, or, or one of the few like where it feels like you're playing a video game rather than kind of experiencing the simulation, is in hunting, um, mm-hmm. which has had a lot of different versions over the years. Um, now I believe the hunting you were referring to earlier, uh, Jesse, was the one where you actually had to type in the word shoot. Is this uh, uh, the one you were referring to? Not that I played. The ones I okay. played in the like the 1980 Oregon part of Elementary Volume Six, a collection of six games, including like a fur trading game and some sort of Hammurabi mm-hmm. game. Uh, in that one, it has a terrible. You're in the middle. 
bullet go up. Uh, you just have to time it right, but the, it is impossible to time it right. Uh, yeah. And like, you know, a, a blobby deer goes across the top of the screen. Uh, and then the 85 <laughs> yeah. version is the one where you can like either use the arrow keys or uh, the like JKL or whatever. And it's incredibly awkward and uh, basically kind of yeah. like obtuse tank controls. I think that the 1971 <laughs> teletype version is probably, uh, this was something I realized because uh, on the Dragons there episode, we were wondering what is the first QTE. Uh, and I mentioned this on the Slack, but I want to you know get this on here for the record, yeah. is that I do think the first QTE in games is having to type bang into not even a bang that's what screen. i meant not shoot bang yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but a teletype because in the yeah. 1975 one it would like print out you know type bang and then you type it but because kids would get you know uh jump the gun or whatever uh they changed it so it would be one of four different words i think one of them was shoot i think it was like bang shoot pow or whatever <laughs> Uh, so that you would you would have to wait to see what it is and then type it as quickly as possible. And I think that actually is kind of that mm. particular version strikes me as uh, the first QTE on some level. Uh, um, the uh, that 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 section and uh, and Rich, I know. Um, I, well, I know you did a lot of hunting in, on your travels um, uh, in the 1985 version, but there would be those times where you're you would you would go to hunt. And your little hunter would pop out there, your character, and you could just kind of swivel around in 360 degrees. But um, you'd have three or four rocks or trees around you, and you could literally hit no target. <laughs> that would happen to me quite frequently on my trail. Um, I think when it comes to the hunting, so we'll, we'll probably touch on the whole comedy aspect of this, um, because there's a real sort of dark humor um, surrounding it, but... The thing about the hunting is is just how generous the time is, how easy it is to make a kill, uh, certainly for me in the 1985 version. And then the irony of only being able to carry about one-tenth of the actual yeah. raw materials back to the hut that you've got there. And I don't know if it's this kind of really um, profound um, <laughs> statement about the plight of oxen hunting in the 18th century, um, or if it's just a pure happy coincidence um what it's teaching children about um gaia theory one of james lovelock's um, <laughs> whole thing yeah. you know it, it's this really interesting you know leon um in the slack posted this kind of concept of you know time and distance equals comedy but i did find the hunting component of this to be uh profoundly funny you know you've just got <laughs> carcasses littered all around there and you're pulling back about 30 pounds worth of meat back to there so so i was gonna I was, that was one of the things i was gonna touch on for sure is that like i remember vividly probably in more in the 1993 version i don't think i had the wherewithal earlier to, to feel this way but i remember shooting like like 10 buffalo like 10 <laughs> full buffalo to the ground and then like carrying back you know, 120 pounds of the 1,500 pounds of meat that I just shot yeah, and just been yeah. like, oh, wow, we were the, I am the worst. We're yeah. the worst. You know, like, Ryan, did you, I, you just said, oh, yeah, to that. Did you, did like, that, I still, even playing this game over the last couple of weeks, like, a, a bunch of different runs, right, to just check a couple of things out, like, I felt the weight of that every time. Like, like I would kill one deer and be like, I'm not shooting anything else. I'm not doing it. They're all going to go free. <laughs> you know, did you, did you feel that at all? Yeah, the amount that you can carry back is, is it less than one buffalo? Because I think if you kill yeah, a buffalo, yeah. it's already it overkill. Yeah. Like, that's such yeah, a profound exactly. way to kind of like mechanize and make you internalize. Like, 
because it doesn't tell you until you're done hunting that like you're not going to be able to use all this stuff in the i did also play the 91 mac version which is i think pretty similar to the 92 dos version and and it 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 puts a button on that where after you're done hunting it says you know you have gotten this much food and even sometimes says you know you can only carry back this much but it then will say uh if you you know if the hunting is kept up like the the animals will become you know scarcer uh which i yeah. thought was interesting. interesting but then one time i only killed like three rabbits and i got four pounds of food and it still said that <laughs> i was like you should at least have like a you know greater than x for this because i wanted more than four pounds of food that is not the issue here <laughs> I guess the thing the thing is, you know, the takeaway is like it, it's it's the one kind of mechanic in the game. Oh, certainly the, the game that I played, the nineteen eighty five Apple II version, where you do have some degree of agency over the outcome of um what is going on. Um, mm-hmm. so I felt uh, compelled to basically murder as many mammals as possible within the, <laughs> the given time, if only to sort of like have have a degree of control over destiny. Um, yeah. What that says about me, I'm not sure. Also, the the cost of bullets is outrageous. Uh, it seems to be <laughs> yeah. cheaper than anything else. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I I sent uh, not to just keep talking about things we sent each other, but I sent Rich an image where Rich had died during a drowning accident, but I had also lost uh, 500 bullets. And Rich's response was, "And I those bullets are way more valuable than my life." So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it it was it, that 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 um idea that. You know, killing what you don't need. It really did that. If this game kind of landed a message home with me, that that the wastefulness of that really did resonate. Whether that was intentional or not, or just they decided on a percentage of what you could of what you killed. You know, this is the formula, and that's how it worked. Um, it did send that message to me. I remember that, like I said, vividly from being a kid. Um, uh, of note, um, the 2022 version of the game has a slightly kind of more nuanced mechanic in there. The characters have a, a, a I don't know, some some sort of energy meter, and the amount of um, foodstuffs that you can return is dependent upon how much energy you've got left, and obviously the the kind of balance of the 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 amount of meat that you can get from a carcass is slightly well, it's not slightly significantly lower as well. So it, it doesn't feel quite as kind of much of a, an atrocity um, when you're murdering bison <laughs> on your way to Oregon in that version. Oh wow, that's awesome. Um, I I well, do have we... just on the on the bison thing. I actually found sure. in because uh, I thought I had a highlight about this. In 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 you have died of dysentery, the creation of the Oregon Trail mm-hmm. by Phil Bouchard. Uh, I'll just read this one pair. You know, one of the most controversial design decisions I made is a detail that's familiar to everyone who's played the 1985 version. You go out and you shoot a bison, maybe you shoot two or three as the hunting session comes to an end. But then you see the zinger. However, you are able to carry 100 pounds of meat back to the wagon. Some people see this as a brilliant touch, but some see it as absolutely stupid. It has certainly frustrated more than one player of the game. Personally, I think it was exactly the right decision. It emerged from four distinct lines of thought and basically a combination of yeah, communicating that to, quote, inspire some thoughtful reflection, uh, the fact that it was true, the fact that uh, as a gameplay mechanic, you just don't, uh, if you're going to let the kids do unlimited hunting, because that was one of the big draws of the game, you know, etc. So definitely thought through. And it, yeah, when we tested the product in schools, this feature inspired a lot of discussion. Some of the kids became exceedingly conscious of the waste and many of them decided they would never shoot more than one bison when they went hunting. Uh, so 
yes, the the, the bison hunting in the eighties, uh, you know, really was was uh, yeah. I, I I don't know. It's, <laughs> I don't really know what to make of this. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I that's that's kind of that that sums up my feelings kind of similarly. There, um, it just uh, it, it's one of those things that you know I I don't know. You you can't. It's I, you you read the books and everything, but it's you know the the intention versus the response kind of is something that's that's something all games suffer from, right? You know, like um, but and what lesson that conveys to the player kind of varies over the course of you know who's playing it yeah. and what age and their experience and their already their viewpoints they already have. So, um, it's, it's interesting to say the least because I do remember just heaping carcasses of buffalo out there just being wasted because of my selfishness of wanting to press the shoot button. So, um, <clears throat> but there you have it. Um. Apologies to the great American bison for yeah. for myself and all of us here. Um, we touched on it kind of uh, a little bit in there, but um, uh, we're gonna kind of move on to it. And one of the things is the var- variables and which the the game throws at you along along the trail, which kind of all relate to some forms of disasters, minor to major, um, from something as simple as a wheel breaking on your wagon to a you know, to a, a main character or even the, the, the main character of your trip dying, which then brings your trip to a close. So um, this is from the Forbes article written. Uh, it's talking to Don Rauch again, said the Oregon Trail would have probably been successful if the probabilities chosen for events along the trail had been educated guesses. It probably rained 25 percent of the time. So let's have the computer report rain in one of every four terms. But um, in not content with this approach, uh, I found books in the library that published the actual diaries of pioneers traveling the trail. I kept a record of what happened each day of the trip for several of these diaries, then set the probabilities based on this information. For example, the diaries average reports of rain in 27 days of the 180-day trip. The computer probability for rain was set to 15%. So, um, And that's, again, from the Forbes article with Don Rao, which um, I, put, I put a little diagram in here from an article on Vice that I found fairly interesting. It, it's a it's a pretty generic logic table of like mm-hmm. you know if this happens what happens there. Um, yeah, that's, oh, what I would say is thank God for BPMN and UML model diagrams these days because the decision points in this diagram send chills up my spine. <laughs> so does this for a living? Um, it, it is interesting. I think it would be hard to kind of interpret from a diagram like this, and I assume that it's it's a diagram that one of the creators has generated rather mm-hmm. than somebody who's just observed some of the game. Um, the 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 game can be replicated from diagram like this is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so let's talk about let's we'll kind of talk about these in terms. That there's no real structure to this. Just like um, the weather on on the trail. So uh, what what I found this where I found this affected my journey the most would be um, you know, <coughs> excuse me, uh, rain could potentially slow you down. Could potentially cause a a wagon accident if it were. Uh, the lack of rain or dry weather could um, cause there not to be grass for your oxen to graze and their health could become poor. They could become sick, things like that. Um, and what kind of over the course of time, it feels like the probability, and I believe, Jesse, you talked about this earlier, of these disasters happening along the trail um, kind of goes up and up and up the closer you get, to, the farther west you get from your starting point. And um, so, Ryan, um, for for me, this manifested in kind of what Rich was referring to for with with the hunting in a, a dark comedy aspect uh, to where I would be going down the trail and it would just be like 
the wagon would hit a bump, I'd break a wheel, an oxen would get sick, Leo would get lost for five turns, you know, five days, we'd have to wait, somebody break an arm, someone had cholera, it just like, <laughs> as these things popped up more and more as my trip went along, I kind of started to laugh at them more than I did seem to be affected. I almost looked forward to the calamity because it was something interesting for me to, an interesting problem for me to deal with. Did, how, how did you find these uh, these variables thrown at you? There are these kind of unintended bits of additional comedy when all of the bad things keep happening to one person. When you have like a real, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if that is, if that's like a mechanism built into the game. But I did notice that on a couple journeys, there was, there was, you know, ad, like one particularly unlucky person. And it was, I don't know, it was just very amusing. You do start to kind of form like a main character in your mind, like towards mm. the end of the trip where it's like, okay, well, at mm. least if this one person can get through, this is the one that I'm kind of putting my <laughs> emotional stake in right now. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. Did did anyone else kind of experience like a favorite or a least favorite member of the team or were they all kind of equal in your eyes? Um, in the Apple 285 version, at least the the main character, quote unquote, won't die until everyone else has died. Uh, so. Okay. You know, that that uh, I guess I've always thought of because I don't you know, I don't know if I consciously noticed that, but they, you know, if someone makes it uh, poncho, which is what I always name them for no good reason. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I, I think when we get to the 2022 version, actually, the the interaction and the, the different characters and kind of the, the roles they take, gets a little more interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that. um yeah, I think, you know, if I were playing this with someone else, I think I would have had more fun kind of getting into that side of it. Um, but I was almost playing it I, almost more like an idle game, basically. Where Yeah, that mechanic has a little bit of a darker uh, undercurrent to it when you really think about <laughs> it. You think about like the towards the end of the journey when things are getting really dire and it's clear that both of them aren't going to make it. And the main character just mm-hmm. kind of makes eye contact with the compatriot. And it's like, well, I, I mean, you know, it's it's going to be you, right? Like, <laughs> I have to keep going. <laughs> I I definitely had a moment in, in my game once or twice where um, Bo Jackson, uh, the uh-huh. famous footballer, stroke baseball player, uh, kept repeatedly getting both uh, typhoid and snake bites. And I did definitely <laughs> find myself in a kind of Frank Marshall style, a live version of, okay, maybe we just forge on even more and just kill him off because the man's a liability at this point and <laughs> hopefully things will sort of become a little bit clearer it'll take point. a little uh detour through snake valley yeah. <laughs> exactly it's it's these you know the the kind of um projection of um personalities and narrative onto this game seems to be like incredibly sophisticated for a game of its vintage uh, what well, i just remember when i was a kid i would always put at least one member of my party would be the the star sports figure of my of the <laughs> rival to my Buffalo Bills. So there were a lot of a lot of instances of Dan Marino ending up with typhoid when I was a child, <laughs> you know, and, and me laughing. But it kind of kind of dark, but you know, it just it was just one of those funny things. But but you're right because they do. You don't you start to think we had to stop another three days because Bo Jackson, you know, something stupid happened to him. Meager um, Russians and a, a grueling pace, and we'll see if we can get him. <laughs> <laughs> off him, you know. Um, so uh, I this this is particularly for Jesse and you, Rich. Um, in and because Jesse, you referred to it already, and um, I, I'm interested to know as someone who has the 2022 version installed but has not 
had time to spend more than one or two runs with it. Um, these relationships between the characters, um, they you, you alluded to them being more meaningful. In what ways have they kind of uh, improved on that system to make them more? Is there, is there just general more character interaction? Do you learn a little bit more about them? Or are you tasked with actually developing their backstories? I mean, I don't think... Uh, it, uh, I wouldn't say it's deeper than, say, Metopia. Probably actually less deep okay. than Metopia. <laughs> but okay. but it, it's more that the characters have different skills and little personality quirks and you you know you assign them to different uh tasks that bring out different aspects of them and there it is less of a i'm not sure which one's like the main character and and it okay. does okay, just cool. seem like four people who have organized together out of you know mutual benefit or something uh sure but, my party is like a priest, an adventurer. It's a little more almost D&D-ish. And I would say this version definitely oh, okay. leans in more on being sort of fun and cartoonish than a simulation, probably for the best. Uh, yeah. But if you, if just the the walk animation of them going across the country, if you see it, you'll, you'll get the idea. Uh, <laughs> and it's adorable. They're just kind of like strutting uh, one step away from like a Robert Crumb keep on trucking, just kind of chugging along. <laughs> Even if one of them has a broken leg. The countryside, indeed. Yeah, he won't get in the wagon. He's chugging along with them. Interesting sort of character mannerisms and affectations. So, for example, I had a character in my party who... Uh, m- morale and um, you know your engagement with the the you know the the trek that you're on is is a is a thing in the 2022 version. So I had a character who uh, felt more moralized when they were dirty, which is obviously a problem because that means they're <laughs> more likely to contract dysentery. But actually, was a real boon in certain circumstances where we didn't have uh, fresh clothes, for example, to to be able to change. So it's just a slight kind of. Uh, optional twist on on the game that kind of invites a little bit more critical thinking as you're working your way through the the actual journey. And then interestingly, in the 2021 version, the uh, social stats play into, you know, I I talk about, I played the 1985 version and the 2021 version. I don't know if some of these features were introduced in between. So perhaps some of the others can kind of keep me honest here. But um, the the way that the kind of like social mechanics worked into it, you know, you have a little bit of sense of their temperament or what they're good at from a social perspective. And so it's not all just this kind of like hardened uh, natural survivability. Uh, But, you know, in the encounters that you have with other uh, journeymen along the way and in the kind of negotiations that you uh, participate in, like it, it is useful to have people who are a little bit more kind of like temperamentally well adjusted as well um which which does add a little bit of a additional dynamic you know it was coming out of the 1985 version i was like my biggest um my not complaint but my biggest hope for future versions was that the uh the different family members would be more kind of diversified and they would feel individually very useful um and so it is interesting seeing you know, in these future versions that that has been uh, mechanically realized in ways that, you know, it's Hmm, not just the, uh, not just the kind of projective um, value that you place upon the characters and the names that you give them and, um, you know, whatever it be, but it's, it's also the, the fact that like they, they fundamentally can do different things from one another in the sense of like a, 
you get the sense that they learned a lot from like Darkest Dungeon and other, you know, mm-hmm. role playing um, adjacent type of games like that. Mm-hmm, and, yeah. uh, you know, that does bring uh, a real, um, a, a real additional dimension. Um, and I, I'm glad that it's not all just this kind of like hard skills, but also the soft skills are kind of rewarded as well. Yeah. I was thinking Darkest Dungeon as you were saying that, funnily enough, because it's it's a very different game, but yeah, the the, the quirks and the way you get attached to these characters, uh, I think if you are actually, you know, if you knew an eight or nine-year-old and you love Darkest Dungeon and want to give them something like that, but obviously weren't going to give them that, the new Oregon Trail game would probably be a pretty good pick of just that, that kind of dark comedy hmm. of, yeah, there's like one of my guys is really messy. As as was you know, Richard talking of like so uh uh he will dive into like any any cow guts necessary or whatever and it actually improves <laughs> his morale. Uh and there's a lot of Yeah, I, I it it it's not I mean, we can talk about the other versions as well. I don't wanna dwell too long in the twenty twenty two one, but I was surprised at how much I liked it, even oh, though cool. it's still Feels like it hasn't quite cracked the nut of like what is the the metaphor what is the mechanical metaphor at the core of a of this simulation that actually is more than the sum of its parts. Like it's still kind of a choose your own adventure. It's still kind of a you know uh, a bit spreadsheety, but the content is really fun. The writing is surprisingly good, uh, and yeah, like the the art and it, it's just really lovely in the development clearly uh the people who made it enjoyed making it nice yeah i'm really looking forward to spending some more time with that especially after this discussion like i'm already like i'm already planning on on firing it up over the next couple days just to uh just to kind of get back in there um uh aside from the calamities we talked about um we talked about injuries and illness quite a bit um your wagon can break uh which we talked about wagon tongues and axles and wheels can break your oxen can die so if you don't have enough oxen to actually pull your wagon you could be in trouble there um one of the more but, but not a game over state i think that's kind no. of an interesting aspect yeah. of it you know like yeah. you can wait like doing it's the one instance where doing nothing i think is an option i suppose doing nothing possibly is is not quite case you need to wait for an opportunity to trade uh yeah in, in more than one in i thought like as a a kind of nice um you know, subversion of like a failure state. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then we'll get into that a little bit, the trading at the locations and stuff in a bit too, where you can kind of replenish your stores in, in, if you, if you can, if you have the means to do so. Um, uh, one of the, the kind of surefire ways to have a real bad time, um, is when you're attempting to cross the several rivers along your path. If you don't have the money for the ferries, you can, uh, opt to ford the river, which is to walk your oxen across it, or to caulk your wagon and float it across um, is also an option. Um, and the probability of that going bad is normally fairly high. There was and one part of the Slate article, I don't have it quoted here, um, basically uh, Don Rouch was saying that if, if the, the height of the water was under three feet for fording, you were going to be okay. But if it was anything over three feet, it, like the probability by like, by, you know, tenths of a tenth of a foot like would increase by like tenfold of whether or not something bad would happen when you were fording the river and uh and you can lose a lot of supplies and and good people <laughs> as well um in those moments as you try to try to cross those rivers so and, and um, i think what i just want to emphasize here and i know we're not looking to labor the point on the 2021 22 version of the game but it does seem to kind of have that XCOM 
statistics behind it where a 95% chance of crossing the river is as good as a 0% chance. I don't know if anybody else had the exact same look. <laughs> yeah, the Windows 3.1 version had that too. It would tell you, you know, 80% chance of success and you fire it off and as always. <laughs> you end up, you know, just ass over tea kettle in the water with all your stuff. Um, uh, so moving on from injury and illness, and this is maybe... Um, the area of the game where my brother and I had the most fun, if that makes sense, is in the death of your character. Um, <laughs> when your de- when your party hold or your whole party dies, and in, in all various versions of the game, um, almost all of them had a system where you could leave tombstones behind, uh, where you could write an epitaph on your own tombstone um, for future players to see. Potentially, it actually had memory. It would it would uh, it would assign some memory for this. Um, where you would leave a tombstone, and then if the next person or two times through or three times through will be playing the game, they might be uh, seeing what you wrote on your tombstone. So if you were like me, who had a sibling who was also playing the game as much as you were, uh, you would maybe leave some not-so-flattering messages (laughs) for them on your tombstone that they would be able to see on their next playthrough. So um, my my uh, two-point question, one more jokey and the other, is what filthy things did we all write on our tombstones? Or... Uh, what does this mechanic say about value of life or death on the trail? Um, I, I almost, as a child, I almost looked forward to the death state to the point where I would almost sabotage my crew in order to be to be able to leave what I thought was a hilarious ten year old's joke for my brother on the trail. Um, did now I know um, Rich, you didn't play this so, play this as much as as a child as, as some of the other ones of us. Did you did you experiment with this concept at all? While while I, I you know? can't lie, I, I don't think I really encountered a great deal of it in the nineteen eighty five yeah. version of the game that I played. Uh, a lot of the headstones were empty, which suggested there was some way of interacting with it, and and one that I wasn't taking advantage of. Um, definitely felt it a little bit more in the twenty twenty two version where you could um artificially generate your own kind of eulogy on yeah. your um yeah. uh headstone based around a number of uh different uh very variables so for example i had uh so, so my um main character if you like in the 2020 version was a man called a very safe man and his uh <laughs> gravestone read um here lies a very safe man uh he died as he lived with dysentery <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know it's just a again another kind of one of those dark humors uh um, situations so i did i did a little reading on this jesse and you, you probably know more about this than i do um but that the the grave sites along the trail were were very real and treated with respect by the the travelers knowing kind of the perils of the trail um in in your uh, teaching and 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 not even and you're playing with the game was this was this a concept that that you took seriously or did no. you find it maybe as hilarious as the rest <laughs> of us monsters did did do? <laughs> uh, yeah, as a child, I I just always put try finger butthole, which I now realize <laughs> yeah. is some sort of Prince of Darkness like Miyazaki was sending me a message from the future. Um, <laughs> I, I, the the Andy Pepperoni and Cheese one, which will come up in the three-word reviews, I did run across this time, uh, which is yeah. delightful just because it's like, that's the disc we happen to have that keeps getting duplicated, had this right. one inane message on it. Um, uh, but yeah, not having really played the 85 one in a classroom context. I do love the, I mean, like, Oregon Trail and Carmen San Diego and the best of these games would have some sort of asynchronous mingle player or whatever, like, you know, in some sense where uh, 
Carmen San Diego, you did register like, you know, each each uh, kid could save their name, uh, their game under their own name. And you could look at the roster and see how everyone's doing. So, you know, see if other people are beating you now. And Oregon Trail has that high scoreboard that would actually get used because if, you know, people are playing the same disc over the course of years and years, you know, the legend of the sixth grader who got 8,000 points or whatever, you right. know, at some school, right. I'm sure. Uh, like, yeah, I, I think that you don't find as much of that just because... 80s computer games tend to be a more home solitary development but yeah, yeah. yeah with the edutainment stuff it's 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 nice and you know um it and i guess the other game you really see it in is rogue and nethack right that is literally the game which are network games i mean literally nethack mm-hmm. uh you can find gravestones with other people's treasures and and i think even messages so try sure. not direct influence <laughs> uh, Ryan, did you leave anything uh, inappropriate for uh, the other digital people to find on their on their trails? This makes me envious of uh, people who <laughs> did play this in the classroom setting, because I can imagine uh, trying to engineer names from the very beginning of the game that would make for good, uh, good, silly epitaphs, uh, which is really a <laughs> uh, grim prospect if you find yourself with <laughs> with one of those uh, harbinger type of names. But uh, yeah, no, I, I didn't get to experience this and it's intended way which is unfortunate because it does sound like a, a really good opportunity for for some uh childish comedy <laughs> um so along the trail you kind of come across uh not kind of come across you directly come in contact with a bunch of historical landmarks some forts some rivers and roads that you can kind of take a couple branching paths um basically your options on those branching paths are risk versus reward there so the risk being that a more dangerous path that's shorter versus a longer path that's safer um but at each of these kind of stops on the trail and the and the game gives you a certain amount of miles until your next destination so you can kind of plan out your food and 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 see see kind of how your party's doing if you need to address any of their concerns you will stop at these forts fort kearney uh chimney rock uh big bluff things like that and at these um, landmarks and forts, you can talk with other people. You can trade with others. There's at all of the forts. There is a, a some some sort of commissary there that you can purchase items from. Um, I found that now, as playing it through now, I was much more concerned about the shops than I was previously because I, I was I was less about just murdering all the bison in America to get my hundred pounds of food and move on down the road. Um, but talking with people at the forts was an interesting thing. I, I I saved a couple screenshots of my... I, I talked to a nice group of Mormons, which is how every horror story starts, um, but I talked to a nice group of Mormons that were talking about how they were heading south to Utah, where it's safe for them, and, and where they weren't persecuted, so that I, I learned a couple things about Chimney Rock and a couple of the forts and things like that. Um, did you guys interact with these systems very much? Were you stopping and smelling the roses at the forts, or were you just buying more bullets and, and hitting the road? Oh, yeah. I, I want to talk to everyone I can just to see what other you know, little historical fun facts we're putting in there, which mm. in the 85 version are, yeah, I mean, in terms of content, I don't know how much kids are learning other than through osmosis, but they, they try, mm-hmm. right? They, they, right. They have these little paragraphs and, and, uh, yeah, I, um, I mean, the graphics actually on the Apple II version of Chimney Rock and the different forts and stuff, of course, are very primitive, but there is something evocative about them. So I do, you know, always like to just sort of stop and smell the roses on those because because mm-hmm. the, the primordial apple to uh, depiction of reality does it can occupy me for five ten seconds. 
The images are, are really fun to come across because they're a lot more lush than anything that you would have seen to that point. Um, I, I guess I'm thinking of the 1985 version in particular, but uh, they reminded me a lot of the types of um, illustrations that you would see at the actual landmarks when you're doing like a road trip around the United States, you know, this kind of mm-hmm. slightly propagandistic, like look how great America is type of <laughs> illustration of like the, you know, the big blue skies and the the beautiful landscape and the, you know, settlers shaking hands with native Americans and, and, and such, um, which like in its own kind of interesting way, um, I guess experientially links, you know, these are the types of images that I would only encounter when actually traveling across the United States myself. And so, you know, in a way, like it, it did kind of link those two experiences together in a very appropriate way. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not to maybe broach the subject too early, but obviously there's a lot of uh, historical reckoning to be done with like <laughs> westward sure. expansion and manifest destiny and all this um all the kind of ugliness associated with the uh you know colonization of the land but um and so i was trying to be aware of like how that kind of hit as an older more educated like adult at this point in my life and you know obviously it is a, a very kind of like whitewashed version of you know even though it does depict depict a lot of the individual horrors that these people would be under all the the dysentery and the snake bites and such but um you know as far as the actual kind of integration with the land with the native people and with the the animals again we kind of touched upon that a little bit earlier as well but um but the, the way that the i think the relations with the native american people and then the the kind of big glowing portraits of the land in that very kind of like propagandistic like manifest destiny kind of way like none of it felt like it it didn't rub me as wrong as i was expecting it to and i don't know what to attribute that to necessarily but it i think there was something about the I don't know. For some reason, it didn't feel like it was really taking as much of a side as I was kind of bracing myself for. And I'm having a hard time really kind of putting into words why, uh, why, but um, I don't know if anyone else can maybe take a swing and have a little bit better success in landing something than I can. You're in the game. You're just some schmucks. Yeah, like like as as much as maybe people like you doing this are a historical issue and the westward expansion encroaching on indigenous people's homes, like on some level, like you're just like it's not like you're having an easy time of it. Like, and if there's any karma for you individually going west, you're definitely experiencing it. Like so, Mm -hmm. um, I think from that point of view it's it's i mean it's a fairly bare bones game in some way and it is so po-faced like that things just happen and even even when it is something that maybe is intentional with uh you know the waste of buffalo it certainly states it in a very deadpan way um there is you know there's some section where bouchard does talk about how he wanted to have 
there's a, a lot of different things you want to have that got cut and, you know, more Native American representation and a, a Native American character uh, that you would interact with was one of those things. But mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, yeah. this seems like a pretty logical place to get into that. Um, I it's kind of the next thing we were going to talk about anyway was the, was the legacy of this game and the treatment of of Native Americans. Um to the point where, as far as interacting with Native Americans on the trail, it's almost non-existent. Um, what, like for for the actual player character to interact with groups of Native Americans doesn't exist. There's a couple still, I guess you would call them still, you know, pixel art photos that that depict some Native American imagery of you know, like a, a Native American wearing a headdress, standing on a hill. Um, there's yeah, things like that. The, Stereotypical parades is a bit. Yes, I, I, I'm so yeah. sorry about that. I'm incredibly ignorant of, of 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 actual like you know this element of history. So if I'm sure. kind of overstepping myself, please do feel free to come and correct me. Um, but yeah, yeah, like the imagery in particular seems to have caused a lot of concern as opposed to the content of the, you know, the the verbatim dialogue, if you like, the, the right depicting. So 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 from that Reddit AMA that you were referencing, Don Rowich said, um, but he was asked, is anything you wanted to include in the game but had to cut due to memory limitations? And he said, not due to memory, maybe my own memory, but it would have been interesting to add a Native American viewpoint, perhaps a character who watches the wagons come into that ter territory is, is his response to that. But then in the game itself, in in talking to the people around, you can, you can read some per particularly negative viewpoints of native americans there's a screen um where uh it says um this is a a uh, from a sioux brave from a so from a from a member of the sioux native american tribe says the pawnee are the mortal enemies of the sioux i would not hesitate to kill any pawnee i met but i've never killed a white man all i ask from the white man is to leave me alone and to leave my buffalo alone and i'm sure you've now, felt incredibly guilty uh brian about your um <laughs> hunting yeah. habits yeah, well, yeah, I definitely did not leave the buffalo alone. Um, but so, so I, I have to say this up front, Rich, that while while I may not be as ignorant as you to the history of it because of living here and living very close to some Native American populations, I am not myself Native American, nor do I pretend to, um, to to be overly knowledgeable about uh, to speak on this with any authority. Um, however, I do feel like it was an element of the game that was. That that was definitely not treated correctly, but I also I come at it from this other viewpoint too, which is of it was a game made in 1985, and I would have worried that if they did try to acknowledge this from a 1985 lens, it would be more problematic than than a non-acknowledgement, while also saying that the non-acknowledgement in in and of itself is problematic. Does that make sense? Um, I and I don't know how to marry those two things in my head. Um, Jesse, uh, any thoughts on 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 the Native American representation here. I think what's interesting is when you look at what Bouchard writes, like he did think, you know, the team did think about it a lot. They did try to, um, you know, figure out how to represent Native Americans. And in some sense, it's just a, it's a different version of what happens with like, they have all these clever weather systems and the net effect on you is like, Oh, sometimes I'm sick. Or, you know, that like I it just doesn't come through partly because they weren't able to fit it all in there. But there's this, you know, uh, part in his book where he's talking about um, 
you know, we don't want to have uh, players attacked by hostile Indians, but there was a lot of fear of that. So, you know, we should have it mentioned in the monologues, but actually, you know, not have it happen. But there's this list of seven handwritten rules he has about, quote unquote, Indians uh, that were from 1985, which is many nonviolent contacts, reasons for their actions, everything by tribe, chance to avoid conflicts, many opportunities to learn about culture, no shooting at people, many conflicts are with non-Indians. And he goes into what, but like, you know, and then basically 3% of that shows up. You know, there's uh, an yeah. Indian guy yep. you can hire. Uh, you know, and, and, and they do refer to him as a Shoshone. Like that was another thing Bouchard mentions in here is, you know, making sure mm -hmm. to not just say Native American generally, making sure to, but I mean, I mentioned that freedom game and, you know, yeah. that's a game done by a African American who has led uh, slave escape reenactments for years before making that game and has a very, you know, coherent theory of the case, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, his stuff is, you know, simulation in general is very difficult, I think, just because, you know, when you make a regular game, you can just kind of shoot the arrow in the air. And if it lands somewhere fun, you just draw the bullseye around it and, you know, mm -hmm. make it look like a goblin or something. Um, yeah. Whereas when you're trying to simulate reality, you know, you are you are very constrained and there's an uncanny valley that people will very quickly hit when you're. Yeah, and I think it is very interesting to me how, you know, thoughtful and well-intentioned these people generally were and how it all often got really botched anyway and just, you know, doesn't right. come through. Right, Um And again, I know that, that us speaking on this, and I can't speak for your, your personal history, Ryan, or, or your personal, um, you know, kind of lineage there, but for myself not coming from a Native American background, um, I just now find I, I, I probably, uh, if, if I'm being 100% honest, as a child, I probably didn't notice it at all because Native American representation in media didn't exist when I was a child almost, you know, unless it was hyper stereotypical. Um, the, when you view this game now through, with a historical lens, Ryan, do, do you see the treatment or the kind of essential non-treatment of Native Americans in this game as being problematic? I mean, that's the thing. I, I guess the more that we talk about it, the more I come around to the you know, running scenarios in my head for how this would have netted out in a 1985 or a 1971 game. I'm getting like right. nine out of 10 simulations coming back very negative, um, yeah. you know, more harmful than they would be helpful. Um, I just I, I think more than I don't I'm not necessarily put off by the way that native americans are featured in the game but i think that there is an, a missed opportunity for um learning a little bit more about the kind of history of the native people and about the kind of individual cultures around the you know the the tribes and especially because the game does such a good job of letting you kind of feel the change in the landscape of the united states and really kind of giving you a like a like a tangible feeling of the of the geography like it, it does such a good job of that it would be it'd be so interesting to get some of that detail and actually like be you know expose children to more of the history of the people and 
because there really isn't that great of even now, like that great of education about um, the specifics of Native American history. Uh, If we think about the kind of other edutainment games of contemporaneously, like the Where in the World of Carmen San Diego, like that is taking place in a kind of post-colonial United States and and post-colonial world. Uh, And so, you know, they don't really have the same kind of opportunity to explore um, the minutiae of, you know, what was really kind of at the time, like, I don't know, there was no better time period perhaps to uh, explore um, than, than in what this game was hoping to simulate. So more of a missed opportunity perhaps than something that I can really, you know, raise pitchforks about, but it was interesting that I was really kind of like, I don't know, maybe expecting it to be a lot worse than it was. And the fact that it didn't end up being, um, it ended up being perhaps a little disappointing in not following through fully, but, uh, but not being as bad as you could reasonably expect it to be, I think is, is, worth noting anyways just to piggyback on, on what ryan's saying there's a an article that i read in preparation for the show from i think it's grunge.com to do with how a lot of the quotations that are put in there they're not even quotes are they it's conversations that those those when you choose the option to speak to people the people that you're speaking to were actual real travelers so um i've just pulled it up now one of the names that pops up is marnie stewart and that's a diary that was written as part of the oregon trail so some of the actual narrative is pulled from primary material to be able to do that and i guess maybe there's an, a conversation here about like whether or not the absence of representation or the poor representation is largely just down to the fact that there's very poor primary research to be able to draw upon or maybe mm, a conscious yeah. or an unconscious bias that kind of prevents whomever it is that wrote the the kind of material on here from actually being able to do it justice. But as you say, it's 1985. I think one thing I would say is that the, um, the 2021, 22 remake Oregon trail was created by, uh, an Australian studio who did bring in a consultant from like a first nation American community. And they did things like, you know, specifically get rid of braids, take down the kind of whistles and drums and some of the music just to make it feel a little bit more, like authentic is not the word, but um less um pejorative and mean spirited. Uh well mm, maybe yeah. that's too much, but um a little bit fairer and um more realistic. Interesting. That was gonna be my next question for you guys who had played that. Where had those things been addressed in the, the newer version? So um so yeah, it's just one of those it's it's a it's it's a game that handles historical topics made with the lens of people who were living and making games in the 70s and 80s. So um, those those biases, implicit or not, uh, do make their way forward. So it's just it's interesting to reflect upon when discussing it here for the purposes of this show. Um, it also brings up the topic of Westward expansion. Um, so uh, uh, our glossary words in middle school social studies included the term manifest destiny very often when discussing American history, which was the idea that it was, uh, and, and our politicians at the time in the 1800s believed that it was God's will that uh, the American people would conquer the continent from the East Coast to West Coast. And that was kind of, there's a lot of shows and media, whether it be your, um, you know, your Bonanzas and things like that. Um, Little and, House and on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie, your glorification of Western culture, frontiersmen, the riflemen, all these things, you know, these 
these uh, shows basically glorifying the the culture of expansion and moving west and settling down what would they would frame as you know the untamed territory um and um so in and we we don't need to get an answer from everybody on this i think it's it's a difficult question to answer like and i think jesse you already commented on it a little bit like the, this game do you think it glorifies that process or does it romanticize it in any way or does it does it make it seem terrible because in my experience from the game the, the and and a lot of this is due to what happens to your party as we've discussed at length yeah um it makes it it makes it feel like an arduous task now whether or not the motivations were pure or unjust the the actual physical act of doing it this game certainly makes it feel like a chore for la- for lack of a better term this yeah that that you need a prequel game where you're like finding out exactly how bad it was in 19th century Delaware or whatever to actually mm-hmm. make this seem like the better option uh because otherwise it just feels like lemmings going to die uh <laughs> right that right. i mean yeah that's a th- it's it's i think part of the problem with the game as a simulation might be that it is so not not solipsistic but you know it's focused on one family Mm-hmm. You don't actually interact even with other wagon trains, uh, which Bouchard said, you know, another feature he wanted to have in there that there wasn't room for. Um, and yeah, it it's just such a like. You're just focused on getting from point A to point B without dying. And in terms of even like Native American representation, there's just it would be the representation would be people being kind of afraid in a racist way and never interacting mm-hmm. with them, I think, because that was, um, you know, their, I think their primary experience would be, God, I hope we w- don't run into anybody um, because every other bad thing that happens to us happens. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the bigger picture story, I, I certainly, uh, doing this podcast has made me start thinking about a, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the tabletop game Spirit Island, which is sort of a reverse colonist Mm-mm. game nope. uh, where you play the the spirits of the island who are d- terrorizing and driving off the colonists from, you know, being on your goddamn island. Um, mm. And certainly a a game from the Native American point of view about the westward expansion would be pretty fascinating. And maybe that even already exists. There might be some coin game or something. Um but yeah, I I think I I just don't know where exactly that would that would fit here. Even in the 2022 version, there's just not that much interaction with groups of people. It's usually you're meeting some weird inventor or, you know, some odd thing is happening. Um it feels really out of scope to get into ideas quite as big as like Manifest Destiny just because of like the scale of the project is so kind of empathetically on the individual family, as Jesse was saying, like, this is like, I I guess a uh, 21st century equivalent would be to like, look at gentrification. And the problem with gentrification usually isn't like the individual people who say, like, I need a place to live. This looks like a nice place to live. I'm going to, you know, set up a home here. It's, It's with the larger... Uh, kind of system and whether there's individuals mm-hmm. at the top who are kind of making decisions to you know redline certain neighborhoods or to you know specifically for you know political or economic reasons or whatever force people out like who's to say like that that level of analysis 
really isn't, um, I don't know, feasible or appropriate to apply to like the people who are kind of individually benefiting from, you know, the systemic yeah. pressure that's yeah. being put in. And, and ultimately, like the tragedy is the systemic pressure. And if a game really wants to explore that, which I think that there's there's tons of opportunity and, and it would be a, you know, a great moral good to kind of reckon with that part of our history way more than we do at that part of our present way more than we do as well um but if there is a desire to reckon with that part of history then we can't we can't focus it on these individual families who you know make this very kind of sympathetic journey like obviously they're they're working hard they're you know they're they're moving out to do what they think is best to you know survive along with their their family as well like you really have to focus it on a higher level if you want to get the whole kind of like systemic um, issue on sure. the table. And yeah. this game just can't cover it reasonably. Right. I think in general, that's, you know, if you, the, the edutainment of systems in that way generally just does require that bigger scope. Um, yeah. Where you know, and that has its own problems, but but right, this is more like XCOM. This is not a balance of mm -hmm. power. It's um, not SimCity or Age of Empires, even or you know, right, exactly. Right. Uh, but I do and, think there's there's, there's like, a, like a really interesting conversation here about you know its use in a classroom and its position when accompanied and um, coupled with some actual kind of hardcore like conventional education and mm, I haven't yeah, read sure. the teacher's guide. It's unlikely I'm ever going to read the teaching <laughs> guide, but um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, you know, what would support that conversation as, as part of this. And we are kind of as Americans explicitly fed like a manifest destiny as part of our education, like even still. Sure. Um, it's something that I encountered a lot growing up and it, you know, based on the, you know, political divisions within our country right now, it doesn't look like, uh, like that's necessarily going away anytime soon. Um, and so, right. you know, whether or not this this type of game kind of plays into making that argument a little bit more sympathetic, like that's really hard to say. I think there's still kind of value in getting the experience of what it was like to make this journey at this time. And I think the game does a pretty good job of like putting you somewhat in the headspace and you know, giving you insights into like what it means for those people to make that journey. But yeah, I think on the wider scale, like it, it does, it, it does kind of beg the question whether, whether or not this, that perspective being overrepresented and alternate perspectives not being represented, uh, does have some kind of a, um, kind of a larger effect perhaps. Yeah, all things to consider, you know, when trying to view this from two lenses, right? You're trying to view it from the, the lens of a, the child playing it in the classroom versus also the lens of us talking about it on the show. So uh, a lot to consider there. And, and the fact that they're still taking cracks at making new releases of this game to show that the the, the, the bones of it there are, are solid. And, and how do you refine those to make more sense in a, in a modern context, whether edutainment or just pure entertainmently? Um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting problem to, to try to solve, so... Um, well, we've kind of gone through all the, the talking points here. Uh, we did have one piece of correspondence from our Patreon, uh, Robin Enrico, who wrote saying, being a child of the eighties in America, I have fond memories of playing this game in our school computer lab. 
I'm sure this will be the case with many other correspondents of a similar def- demographic. But despite being a game I should be as nostalgic for as Super Mario Brothers, this must be the first time that I have gone back to play the game since then. And I can see why. The game is such a mix of dopamine hits, big chunky full screen graphics and little jingles, and the absolute cruelty of a modern survival roguelike. Within five minutes of starting on the trail, I'd already lost six oxen and two party members, and I had to restart my run. I can see now why as kids we mostly just slaughtered every living thing inside the hunting minigame. At least it feels like you can win there. Still, as my fingers effortlessly flowed over my keyboard inside its menus, I realized that the Oregon Trail had won in the end. Its history lessons never stuck with me, but it is incalculable how much it helped me become comfortable with using a computer. Um, I can I can uh, echo those sentiments as well. Just becoming comfortable with keyboards and, and things like that. Uh, uh, very formative for a lot of people. Uh, we received, in three-word reviews, we received a grand total of three of them. So uh, we will start going down here with you, Rich. Yep, so Two Smoking Controllers writes on the Patreon, died from dysentery. Robin Enrico, typhoid teaches typing. And Blue Weasel Breath, Pepperoni and Cheese, misspelled correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, so now it's just kind of time for us to summarize um, a gaming franchise that has spread over 50 years. So, Rich, I will start with you. Um, I expect this to be an eloquent summation of all the points that we've uh, discussed today. Of of 50 or so years worth of this. Yeah. Okay, yeah, um, am I pleased I've played it? Yes, um, I, I don't know why I'm here in, in general. Um, I don't share the history, but I'm I'm delighted to have kind of like actually got a sort of slice of what potentially education in the 1980s for uh, an average American uh, individual might have been. Um, look, what did I expect when I was coming in here? Um, to be honest with you, I had uh, a lot of reservations. I thought it might be uh, quite a jingoistic, uh, racist, um, often uh, oppressive game um, or at best, uh, an incredibly comedic game, and probably where it landed for me was somewhere in the middle. Um, it's a infinitely playable game, I would say. And in fact, actually, I think I played through the um 1985 game just on a whim this afternoon in about 25 minutes, just setting mm. the meager rations and a grueling pace, and not really giving a stuff about the actual well-being of the individuals, which really is is kind of where the game is best. I I think it's a, a fairly interesting and um accurate maybe is the wrong word but um believable depiction of the plight of human misery when people are uh, mass migrating away from and towards something that is better than what they previously experienced uh the 2022 version is is very good it's um a roguelite we didn't really go into too much about like what it was but i, I did find it to be a, a a good diversion um it's a way more sophisticated game um it's got more replayability it even includes things like a texas uh trail or a california trail so I haven't quite played them, but I might go back and actually see if I can experience what it is that's put there. Um, My abiding thoughts behind this were, um, I was surprised at how effective it made me feel um, quite affected, or it was an affecting game in the way that something like Frostpunk is. The sense of relief as I I hit the Willamette Valley in in both versions of the game was palpable. Um, So it's clearly affecting me in the way that it probably intended to. And I guess it's kind of meeting the intention of what the developers wanted to. But I also can't deny that it's a a very darkly comedic game. And weirdly enough, reminds me of something like Tomodachi Life. Just watching the misery and the mystery unfold and seeing what kind of 
random events happen and then laughing at the misfortune of uh, Bo Jackson and uh, Ronald McDonald <laughs> or the Hamburglar in my case. It, it just is a, a comedic thing. Um, pleased to have been here, pleased to have played it. Um, I don't think I'll ever return to it in a, a kind of academic sense, but I'll certainly return to it for um, for giggles in the future. Thank you very much, Rich. Uh, how about you, Ryan? Yeah, I found uh, I found this game to be very interesting. Um, I'm 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 particularly interested in how you know, designers use um, you know mechanics and systems and and really kind of rigid <laughs> rigid systems like this, especially so early on in video game development, to try to uh, represent like such a complex. Um, feeling or such a complex narrative as like moving west with your family and trying to survive out in the wilderness and you know the the number of kind of random types of uh miseries that would befall you and the 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 t- kind of the way that the um food rations were kind of tuned to where by the end of my first journey, I was really kind of scraping by. Uh, I had like double or single digits of uh, pounds of food left. Like it was a, it was a really kind of photo finish for me. And feeling that kind of desperation, feeling the you know, decision making, um, even the you know, the nineteen eighty five version of the hunting mini game, I found to be really interesting because you'd go out hunting that would be kind of a daily action um in the persona sense you get this the feeling that you know are you are you wasting time are you wasting resources in pursuing this option and then finding yourself with trees kind of blocking each of your uh, trees and rocks that you know make your hunt literally impossible to uh take anything of value from like all of this all of this did kind of evoke an experience of of being out there and roughing it and trying to care for your family and not having everything that you need to, um, to get it together. But, uh, but, but there was something kind of exciting about that. Uh, it did a good job of creating these interesting little stories. And I think more than the kind of educational aspect, the, in, the, the bit of it that I'm most interested in is in the kind of storytelling capacity. And I think that, since this game's you know launch there have been other games that have um perhaps used this as a bit of a uh a bit of a starting starting block and have gone in really interesting directions i i'd say if anyone is um is nostalgic for their time with the Oregon trail then i'd recommend 80 days uh it's a, a wonderful game uh based on around the world in 80 days uh, about kind of visiting various countries throughout the world, um, uh, collecting resources to trade in other ports, and having similarly random and sometimes miserable things happen to you, but um, but all wrapped in a, a very compelling context with some wonderful writing, some uh, very. Uh, intentionally produced narrative moments um I, I think it's a really nice extension of what the Oregon Trail was able to do with um with systems alone and so you know f- from that perspective and you know from the perspective of them really kind of blazing a lot of this 
uh, a lot of the trail um, on their own without many video games to uh, base that exploration on. You know, it, it is really impressive what they were able to accomplish and um, and still impressive that people are continuing to make Oregon Trail games today that uh, you can fire up Apple Arcade on your iPad Pro and download a version of the Oregon Trail that still looks very beautiful, that still has kind of new things to introduce into the formula. Um, it, it's it's impressive the legacy that it's left. Uh, I'm uh, I don't know if I'm you know necessarily going to be making attempts at at high scores in the original 1985 game now, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm I'm continually impressed by its legacy and what it was able to accomplish. Very nice. Um, I, I said at the beginning that I've probably played as much of this game as I have many other games over time, just because it was such a formative part of my computing youth, learning how to use computers. Every computer I owned as a child had some version of the Oregon Trail in it. I think, I think the, um, the gateway that we got in 1999 came with a CD-ROM version of whatever was the current version of Oregon Trail at the time. It was like a, it was like a pack, pack in software with a couple other things. And, um, it's it's almost like it's so it's so commonplace in my in my use of computers that I almost view it akin to like Microsoft Word or something. You know, it's just like the, the icon that's always there on the desktop and um and that I use just so frequently. And and I I I, I don't necessarily and and that's not even to say that I like love it or it's one of my favorite games of all time or anything. It's just, I just spent so much time with it. It's hard to separate the just it from my history as a person. Um, but to, when Jesse originally suggested this for the show, I, I just, I was so excited to get the opportunity to talk about it from this context. Cause it's been a long time since I viewed the Oregon trail as just a video game. Cause it's, it's just so many different things and so many different people. It was my excuse to not do my homework. It was, um, it was the, the, the wool I was pulling over my parents' eyes in order to get a computer, uh, get a game on the computer my mom was using just for her treasurer work for the local Episcopalian church. You know what I mean? Like it was like it was more than that to me. So, um, so to be able to to talk about it in this context was a delight. And I think just my thoughts on it are that I still find it remarkably interesting. Um, for all of its flaws, for all the things that I was supposed to learn and didn't learn, and and for the way that my thoughts on it have evolved over time, I just find this game continually interesting and there's always a reason to go back so when firing up the multiple versions i played for preparation of the recording and reading a lot of the history of the game that i didn't know before preparing for this recording was just it was like putting a nice little bow on something that's been a part of my life for a really long time so um so yeah i um it's it's no longer this section for me is not a should recommend should you play or should you not i mean this if you've gotten this far in the podcast you probably are already interested or have already played it but there's so many different versions available for you to play on the internet at the click of a button, including the visit Oregon website, which I learned today, <laughs> um, which I'm going to go check out after this. And I'm going to check out that 2022 version. And if there's a 2024 version of the Oregon trail, I'll probably be one of the weirdos that'll be out there you know, buying that and, and checking that out too. So uh, very excited and, and honored to have talked about this one. So Jesse, why don't we finish up with you? Since the dawn of time, man has yearned <laughs> to roll and move. Uh, every culture that has any sort of non-athletic game whatsoever has the roll and move game has evolved it independently has probably evolved doubles do something special 
It's very interesting. Uh, you know, it just keeps happening over and over. And I really, this game is your, the thing that makes it unlike Lemonade Stand or Hammurabi or the other sort of, you know, resource management, almost total idle game, uh, edutainment stuff, Drug Wars, you know, everyone's favorite TI-83 game. Uh, speaking of, you know, things you could do instead of your homework. Uh, but it's the fact that you're going from point A to point B. You know, that you have an avatar, like that is the, the, the roll and move game is when you take keeping track of flipping coins or rolling dice and your your peg that's keeping track of the score, some mental flip happens and it becomes a little guy and it's you. And now he's trying to get wherever first. And it's so primordial. And and roll and move stuff is, you know, kind of mostly disrespected in this sort of strategy board game world in the same way that I feel like something like Oregon Trail, which maybe is more successfully experientially than mechanically in some senses. Like it's a, it's an interesting and scrupulous simulation. Uh, and it's a it's a intense experience. Uh I don't think anyone has quite cracked the nut, even the 2022 version of, of again, sort of the, the metaphors and the mechanics. Like in that 2022 version, the hunting and fishing games are fine, but they're not like there is not a version of this game that as pure game qua game, I would give like an unqualified recommendation in some sense. But I, you know, the the theme of it, the the fact that it, this has become kind of its own little genre, and you can have games like uh, Overland. I don't know if anyone played that, but that was an interesting kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, get from point A to point B game. Uh, I, I bought but have not yet played Oregon Trail, but I remember that being uh, touted. Uh, and So Long Oregon, which is Justin Smith, uh, creator of uh, Desert Golfing's version, which is basically the Apple II Oregon Trail meets wacky Excite Bike. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it as a very different sort of game. But yeah, I think I'm really glad we covered this. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy, Ryan, that you had so much more kind of actual firsthand experience with this, because I do look at this kind of... Uh, you know, as more like a fascinating thing, but not something I have a visceral connection to so much. Uh, but yeah, I hope I hope people found that, you know, an interesting one to go through. And as I said, you know, looking through just Apple to edutainment in general uh, or just, you know, stuff people make for kids. Uh, they don't they're not subtle about what they're usually trying to teach them ideologically or morally or whatever. So, you know, if you're looking to learn about the past, often it's a very good thing to look at because, you know, it's very accessible. It's written for eight-year-olds. And, uh, yeah, you're going to know, you know, what, what these people, how they viewed reality in a, in a cartoonish way. Uh, but, yeah, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm really happy we got to do this. Oh, thank you for suggesting it. And uh, thanks also, aside from Jesse, to you, Rich, and Ryan. Editor Jay is... Well, as the, our correspondence, and plus, of course, all of you for listening to this episode. Um, tune in next time uh, in issue 572, where we visit a galaxy far, far away from an even longer, longer time ago. It's time to take on the Sith Lords in BioWare's classic Star Wars RPG, Knights of the Old Republic. Mm-hmm.